morning, everyone. This table's my security blanket. You study closely the first 12 verses of the eighth chapter of the Gospel of John, you see a human drama unfolding between Jesus, an impressionable crowd, and some religious leaders of the day, and a scapegoated woman who is said to be caught in adultery. We see like an invisible mark on her forehead, a single sin marking her life and treated with contempt by all around her because of the culture of the day, because of the Mosaic law because of the way it treated the sin of adultery. Sexual sin's always been the scapegoat, the unpardonable act, the inexcusable one, the deadly one. We've let this one sin represent the most reprehensible crime throughout history in some ways. In Croatia's capital city of Zagreb, there's an unusual museum called the Museum of Failed Relationships. It started out as a joke, but the idea snowballed and others picked up on it. It's an example Cynically, a wooden box made of matchsticks framing the picture of a couple named Jelka and Valdo. Valdo had made this box for his wife on their wedding day, and the description on the box reads, After 18 years of marriage, he left me for another woman. We officially divorced after our 25th wedding anniversary. Jelka ordered a cake with a number 25 on it and a pastry shop cut it in half. She sent Valdo the half with a number 25 on it, the cake is now gone, and so is our marriage. I still have the box and two sons and a lot of memories. Failed relationships, the tragedy of our human journey. But today is not focused on adultery or lying or greed or selfishness or stealing from others or any of those things, as ungodly as they may be. Today is about deserving a chance. And most of us are glad to receive a first chance in this life but if we receive a second one, well, that's really something special. This John 8 passage is staged in the temple in Jerusalem. Many came to hear a rabbi named Jesus who was teaching, and most certainly that day this was a scrutinizing crowd. Jesus, having taught on the Mount of Olives the night before, <clears throat> the next morning returned to the temple teaching again. Some among this group were his followers, already convinced that he was who he said he was. Others, the jury was still out as far as they were concerned, still unconvinced, still needed some answers to some of their questions. Talk echoed through the temple that day and the whispers of, could he be the Messiah? Could he be the one? State your case, Rabbi, said the crowd. Give us a reason to believe you, impress us, persuade us. I can only imagine that as he spoke there that day, there were both cheers and jeers from the crowd. You and I have been that crowd, <clears throat> trying to put it all together, wanting to believe, but afraid to. We're pulling for the home team. We're cheering on our hero, clapping, yelling, hands in the air, affirming a good play or a victory, but also pounding our fist in contempt or frustration when things don't go our way. And the players on the field are just not getting it done. Someone once said that a football game re resembles 80,000 people in the grandstands desperately in need of exercise, watching 22 men on the field desperately in need of rest. While we're still the crowd, we don't feel accountable. The temple crowd watched, they listened that day, waiting to give their thumbs up or thumbs down. So what about you and what about me today? 
What part of the crowd do we resemble? What else can Jesus do to wow us today? And if he does, how long will he have our loyalty and our support? Because crowds can go either way. There's either security and safety there and satisfaction, but there's also no lasting honor or high calling and never leaving the crowd. We feel entitled to change our mind. We stay in the bleachers because the risk is too great to move out and enter the game. Jesus says to us today, I need somebody coming off the bench. Are you ready? So if you're tired of sitting in the bleachers, of watching a few weary players wear themselves out, may you be given a second chance today to be something, to do something, to stand for something, to believe in something. Jesus invites you and me onto the field today to play the game, for the crowds can really only react to what happens in life. They never really make things happen themselves. In that crowd in Jerusalem that day, they were going to hear a seductive plan. While Pharisees and Sadducees, the big heavies of the Jewish culture, the religious elite of that day, they listened to Jesus, but they were disturbed. A Messiah from Galilee, how can that be? A servant king, preposterous, blasphemous, heretical. This man was of no use to them. So they followed him, his every move, and hung on his every word, but only so they could discredit or expose him and eventually be rid of him. And they devised a rather crafty plan. Find some unsuspecting sinner to be exposed, seductively place Jesus in a position where he had no fence, no defense. They used an adulterous woman that day, asking the question of Jesus, what would you have us do with this woman, teacher? Ironically, giving him the title of teacher is pretty hypocritical in itself. They didn't think he was a teacher. They thought he was an imposter. And socially approved setting, like in the temple, they would make that designation. Teacher, what do you say? But they knew if he said stone her, his followers would claim that he was not a man of grace and mercy. And if he said release her, it would have been grounds for blasphemy by virtue of the Mosaic law. They thought they'd back Jesus into a corner. But don't think for a moment that these Pharisees and Sadducees cared one iota about a devastated woman. She was a pawn in a seductive chess game that they were playing. And seduction can lead to some pretty nasty behavior because when our cause dictates and we believe passionately about enough about something, we'll do whatever it takes to get our way, even in the name of religion. There's a town in Northern Ireland that spent a lot of time, effort, and money changing its image for the for the arrival of some very special guests. And on June 17th and 18th, 2013, eight of the world's most powerful people gathered in this community of Enniskillen, Ireland, including President Obama, Russian President Putin, and German Chancellor Angela Merkel, that called the G8 Summit. Now, the town put up some fake storefronts during those two days over their shuttered businesses and filled the windows with pictures of what the town used to look like before a huge economic collapse had taken place. It gave the appearance that prosperous times were still there, outward prosperity, but concealing inward emptiness. Villagers seductively misrepresented their own town so the perception and appearance would fit their intent. Likewise, these Pharisees used the appearance of religious, self-conscious leaders protecting the Mosaic law keepers of the faith, but it was only a window display 
to disguise their insecurity and their resentment inside. Seducing Jesus was justified, for it would save their people from a presumed imposter. Guess what, folks? Sometimes you and I use fake window shades ourselves, for it hides our spiritual and moral bankruptcy on the inside. But sooner or later, the window displays must come down, and we're exposed for who we really are. Keeping others at a distance from us with presented loyalties, convictions, and purpose is all part of it. If there's any hidden seduction in your motives or mine today, may we confess them, may we give them up, may we ask for forgiveness, and ask for the second chance. Seduction cheapens and betrays, and God gives us our second chance to be authentic and real. The scheme carefully <clears throat> orchestrated in Jerusalem that day required a test case, and the Pharisees found one. She became a shameful victim. A woman caught up in sexual sin could have been a cause for punishment enough to suffer in silence on her own, as bad as that would have been. But she did not ask for this public exposure and humiliation. She was certainly not the only adulteress in Jerusalem, nor was she the only partner in crime. Why did the Pharisees not bring the man into question? Why did they bring her out publicly to expose her? She would suffer the natural consequence of the law. By this time, she must have felt like the stoning and scourging of death just should be over with. It cannot come any too soon. As this encounter took place, let's get over with the inevitable, the obvious. No recourse, no defense attorney, no advocate left for her unless it could somehow be a Jewish carpenter. We've all been that broken person. No more explanations. We've cast our last card. We've asked for our last reprieve. No one's going to ride up on a white horse and rescue us and take us away. Interesting how brokenness affects and changes us. Sociologist Brene Brown's speech, The Power of Vulnerability, has garnered over 10 million hits on the Internet. She pushes us to embrace our own brokenness with the reality that we are not alone with it, that we are or easily could be just one step away from the broken people around us. She says, we are those broken people. The truth is, we are the others. Most of us are only one paycheck, one drug-addicted child, one mental health diagnosis, one serious illness, one drinking binge, one night of unprotected sex, or one affair away from being those people, the ones we think we can't trust, the ones we pity, the ones we don't let our children play with, the ones we don't want to live next door to, ones like the woman caught in adultery. So how are you and I broken today? It could be in obvious ways, or it could be slow and subtle, without obvious recognition from others, but yet we're still broken. We cannot escape the illusion that it only happens to other people. Our brokenness may or may not have far-reaching implications or have caused severe pain to others, or it may just be that we're dying on the inside. Any one of us could have been brought into the presence of Jesus in the temple that day. As this seemingly helpless, desperate woman lay in front of a perfect rabbi, and as he pondered the hideous and sensitive accusations of these selfish accusers, Jesus took a scribbled pause. Interesting, in this passage, why is it significant that Jesus reached down and scribbled on the ground? John records Jesus stooping down twice in verse 6 and again in verse 8. And I suppose that there are great sermons and theories that have been preached and books that have been written about what Jesus wrote in the dirt that day. 
I frankly don't care. I don't think that's even significant. What I think is significant is that Jesus was so incensed with anger and frustration and disgust at some hypo hypocritical leaders. He had to gather his composure, spend a few moments trying to decide how to respond to them and to her. You know, Jesus was always up for the occasion, reaching for a stone, holding it up to each Pharisee. I can visualize him holding it underneath the chin of each one of them. You throw the first stone. Or how about you? Or you? A scribble pause gave this rabbi his answer, and what he said next sent the accusers into a silent withdrawal. Sure, you can throw a stone, he said, if you admit no sin of your own first. Piercing silence in the temple once he said that. Time must have stood still. Our cards have been played. Our motives have been exposed. Our deception has been uncovered. And there's nothing left to say. There's no other accepted offer to throw the first stone because no one was without sin. Imagine the humiliation the Pharisees must have felt, the shame that must have occurred as one by one they slipped away in silence. We either come into humility on our own or others will eventually bring it to us. If you're silent before God today, perhaps you know He's figured you out. He's looked into your eyes. He's seen your heart and examined your motives. We've all been there. We thought we could put one over on God only to realize He knows us better than we know ourselves. We may attempt to place the blame on others, but there's no more room for games or deception, or pretense anymore. We are silenced before him at his mercy, needing his forgiveness, and certainly a second chance. Meeting God face to face is like that. God's not going to be mocked. He's not going to be caught unprepared, unable to reply. He always has an answer. No pious platitudes or spiritual do's and don'ts. Just a pointed question. If you can show moral perfection today, you may cast the first stone. No one took him up on it. No one could. We would all have each walked away in our own shame and regret that day for the same reason. In the end, every single one of us must depend on a second chance. As the Pharisees shuffled away in obscurity, the crowd remained, as did Jesus and the woman. He turned to her and said, Where are your accusers? Did not even one of them condemn you? No, she answered. And then his response Neither do I, he said. Go and sin no more. Five awesome, beautiful words that she needed to hear then and you and I need to hear now. Not condemning her, but neither excusing her from her behavior. Simply go and sin no more. Doesn't that sound a little trite or simple? Isn't Jesus underestimating the seriousness of this woman's sexual sin? Or is he just saying to her what he would say to any one of us? Sin is what it is. It's selfish. It takes us farther away from God. But he knows that we sin, and he knows that we know we sin. So really, go and sin no more is really all that's needed here. A second chance, an opportunity to make it right. We'd all like to know the rest of the story, wouldn't we? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it make for a great story to know how it all ended? How did the crowd react? Did the Pharisees turn from their hypocrisy and believe in Jesus. Did the woman repent? Was her life different? We can only wonder. Let me close with this story about a real life story from Max Lucado. Years ago, he spent some time in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, 
and had many opportunities to take in the 90-foot-tall, 1,320-ton Christ the Redeemer statue that sits high up on Corcovado Mountain overlooking this massive city. Locato says there are a couple of things that are not quite so obvious to the naked eye about the statue that you have to look a little probe a little deeper to discover. First is that the eyes of Christ are shut, almost implying that he is blind. Yes, you might say, granted, most statue eyes are, are shut. In this case, though, Locato says it's almost as if the sculptor intended Christ to be blind. An interesting irony in light of the fact that atop that huge mountain, as that statue looked down and hovered over hundreds of thousands of people, many of them hurting and lost, it was done with blind eyes. The second irony is that if one follows the statue down below the face and the chin to the cloak that he was wearing, there's an apparent heart, a stone heart, as it may be in the shape of a valentine. Locator remarks that the Son of God is given only a stone-cold heart made out of brick and mortar, in contrast to the compassion that we know Jesus had for the world in which he lived and came to serve. Now, what kind of artist would create a blind Savior with a stone heart for us to gaze upon, you might say? But in reality, that's exactly the kind of Jesus some make him out to be. He's sometimes the rabbit's foot redeemer, small, concise, packaged in convenient form. We wear him around our neck, put him on our dashboard or around our wrist, and we have an instant redeemer. Need a parking place or a good grade on a final? Pull him out, let him do his thing. No need to, to love him or obey him, just keep him in your pocket right next to your four-leaf clover for a quick bailout or a needed miracle. And then there's the genie in a lamp redeemer. Need a new car? Need a new job? How about a new spouse? No problem, just rub the, the lamp and he's at your beckoning command, he'll go back into the lamp when he's not needed so he won't bother you. Well, those who want a rabbit's foot or a genie redeemer can find one and there's no love needed, no commitment required, no service to be rendered. But that's not the redeemer who came from heaven to earth. That's not the redeemer who bridged the gap between God and man. And it's certainly not the redeemer that a desperate, broken-hearted lady needed that day in the temple. Imagine how her day might have begun. The rooster crowed, a peddler walked by with a pack on his back, two children run in play, kicking up dust in the morning sunshine. The temple is crowded with worshipers, listening to a Jewish rabbi who claims to be the Messiah. Some believe him and some don't. As he speaks, the sound of his voice is muffled by the rumble of additional voices and the bustling, noisy movement of some men dragging this scantily clad young female into the temple, one who the night before sold herself for sex or pleasure or food for her family, and now is the public spectacle of humiliation. Her captors in their arrogance and their hypocrisy shout to Jesus in front of a dazed crowd of onlookers, yelling out her sin and her guilt. They have rocks in their hands and double fists prepared to hurl them at her with disgust and shame as soon as Jesus gives them the okay, wanting him to render a verdict. This victimized, brutalized young woman looks up, searching the crowd for any pair of eyes that reveal compassion rather than judgment. Angry, misguided men seemed intent on humiliating and condemning her, but after a piercing personal question from the rabbi, each one of them lets his rocks fall to the ground one by one, leaving her there alone with him. Brought there in, the, in humiliation and the shame of her own sin, but now poised to become the beneficiary 
of grace like she's never seen before. We've already told this story, so to speak, of what happened that day in Jerusalem. So where would it take this woman? To repentance and forgiveness, to transformation and a change in lifestyle? We don't know. But could we also imagine this same woman later somehow positioning herself at the foot of a huge cross atop a hill called Calvary, from which hangs the man who earlier released her, who sent her back home with hope instead of shame? And if she had looked up into the eyes of that man on the cross that day at Calvary as he hung there, would she have seen a blind rabbi? Or would she have immediately confessed, that's the man who accepted and loved me in spite of who I was? Would she have experienced a heart of stone emanating from down from that cross that day? Or would she have felt Jesus' heart next to hers, beating next to hers, putting life back in, in her, giving her a second chance? The thread that runs through this message today and this story is one of second chances. Maybe you spent too much time in the crowd letting others wear themselves out when it should have been you. You're hidden in a mass of indifference and apathy. You can act out of impulse, selfishness, pleasure, and non-commitment. You may feel ashamed, shallow, and embarrassed. There's got to be more out there, you say, than just being in the crowd. May God give you a second chance today to get out on the field. Or you're, you've seduced your way into the lives of others, exploiting them for your own gain or your own comfort, elevating yourself at their expense, and now you're tired of using others to make yourself look better. For once in your life, you want to be authentic and transparent and upfront with God, engaged in life to be known and understood as someone worthy. Perhaps you need a clean slate to prove all, all you've done to, in the past to others is not the way you want to live out the rest of your life and serve your fellow man. You need a second chance. Perhaps poor decisions you've made are holding you hostage, having listened to the wrong voices like the adulterous woman, having walked down the wrong path, and it's time to let God free you from the guilt to release that shame and to start over and to accept that second chance. Are you silently walking away today because you can't hide any longer, ashamed to remain as you are, but scared to death to become anything else? Here's your second chance. The good news of second chances today from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah Speaking of God says, I, yes, I alone will blot out your sins for my namesake and will remember them no more. Place yourself today, if just for this moment, at the foot of the cross. Now gaze up into the open, loving, caring eyes of a Savior who loves you beyond your own imagination. See his heart of tenderness, not stone. His heart of compassion, not bricks and mortar. There's a second chance for you today. The tapestry is woven today in your favor. Jesus still says to us, go and sin no more. <clears throat> Some of you know that my dear mother of 97 years went to be with the Lord two weeks ago. When I moved my mother up here, my dad, 13 years ago from Texas to be near family, it gave me a second chance to get to know her. And for the last 13 years, I've had the opportunity to know my mother in, in ways that I never dreamed. And as we laid her to rest and as we conducted her memorial service, uh, I thanked God for the second chance that he gave me to get to know her as my mother. What's your second chance today? God wants to give you one. Let's pray.